Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing, Dave King engineering in Portland, Pedro Bartes producing and engineering in Seattle. Looking forward to a conversation with Sherry Few. She is the president and founder of United States Parents Involved in Education. U.S. PI is the name of the organization. She'll join us to talk about efforts to... Um, well, change the standards by which kids can graduate, the state of Oregon being the case in point. That's coming up later in the second hour of today's program. And then I wanted to share with you uh, the new House Speaker Mike Johnson's address to the full House uh, after he was elected to that position yesterday. So we'll spend a couple of segments giving you an opportunity to listen in. I found it very inspiring, um, encouraging. He's a man of faith and very outspoken. Uh, about that. He also uh, extended something of an olive branch, was very conciliatory toward his political opponents, in quotes, on the other side of the aisle. So anyway, they haven't been very kind to him in response, but nonetheless, you'll have an opportunity to hear what he said. Well, the House has a new speaker, Mike Johnson. You'll hear from him later in the day, Republican out of Louisiana, and he already has a pretty full plate. He's taking the reins from uh, interim House Speaker Patrick McHenry, Uh, who took up the speaker pro tempore position after uh, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. He's was out about, well, three weeks ago now. Well, the new speaker, though, is inheriting a pretty full um, bag of uh, of events. The docket is full Uh, government funding. The deadline is coming up. There are 12 appropriations bills that need to pass through Congress and reach the president's desk before approaching um, a deadline of November 17th. The government is funded until mid-November. And if you don't get these appropriations uh, bills across the finish line, that would lead to a government shutdown. I don't need to rehearse all of that. Um, the continuing resolution uh, could be a move that Johnson considers to buy more time to uh, pass the appropriations bill. So he could buy a little bit of time. Then, of course, there's a war in Israel. It's been a uh, backdrop for the House Speaker's fight. And action will be taken now that the chamber has a leader, the first uh, thing that they um, sought to do was to pass a resolution in support of Israel. Um, there are Americans being held hostage. There's a funding bill the president has proposed. Many in the House and the Senate, for that matter. It's a big ticket item. I believe that ought to be broken down into different uh, segments. Um, and there's rising anti-Semitism, uh, support for Hamas in America, especially on college campuses. Then there's the border crisis. The southern border continues to be a major issue affecting Americans. Drugs and illegal immigration is pouring into the country, not just on the south, but we're hearing now on the northern border as well. Border officials arrested 18 people on the FBI's terror watch list in September, making fiscal year 2023 a record year for such encounters at the southern border. And according to the Customs and Border Protection stats, 169 people on the FBI terror watch lists were encountered between ports of entry at the southern border in the last 12 months, a number that exceeds not only fiscal year 2022's record-setting total of 98 But the last six fiscal years combined, in addition to addressing the crisis at the southern border, the speaker will have to uh, battle with the administration on its immigration agenda. And then, of course, the Ukraine war, which is separated out from what's happening in Israel. The war between Ukraine and Russia, it also rages with funding uh, being a point of contention in the GOP House conference. Some conservative Republicans are opposed to sending more money to Ukraine during the war, while moderates and Democrats support more funding. Johnson's going to have to balance the interests of the larger conservative wing of his party and the moderate members 
uh, who could influence funding for Ukraine as well. One of the most difficult tasks he's going to face is controlling the House GOP conference. It was um, heartening to see that he got unanimous support among those casting votes yesterday, but that will not hold, I'm guessing, very long once we get down to some of these issues. The Republicans have proven to be pretty wild. It's a a caucus um, with a pretty eventful 118th Congress ousting their own speaker, electing a new one midterm with conflicting interests driving much of the politicking. Moderates and conservatives in the GOP will be a juggling act for uh, Johnson in his new role, not to mention personal agenda of members uh, in the slim majority. So Johnson was elected Speaker of the House Wednesday with a vote 220 to 209. But the uh, the work has just begun. Meanwhile, Israeli Defense Forces revealed footage of an airstrike that they said eliminated a senior Hamas commander. Israeli Defense Forces released that footage, um, apparently taken from an Israeli jet, shows several airstrikes in Gaza. They conducted some 250 such strikes on Hamas targets, and they know specific areas Uh, Over uh, just 24 hours on Thursday, the IDF fighter jets carried out a precise airstrike based on IDF and ISA intelligence. They eliminated the commander of Hamas's northern Khan Yunus rockets array, um, Hassan al-Abdullah, the IDF wrote in their statement. Abdullah is uh, only the latest senior commander Israeli forces have killed, and he's unlikely to be the last. The prime minister has vowed that all of Hamas members involved in the October 7th attack on Israel will be killed and that Hamas itself will be destroyed. Later on the, on Thursday, and for them, of course, they're um, ahead, the IDF said it also eliminated a top Hamas intelligence official who is said assisted in the planning of the um, October 7th massacre. Um, Israel identified the target. Uh, the deputy head of Hamas intelligence um, dictatorate or dictorate. Anyway, those strikes are continuing. Meanwhile, the Iranian foreign minister, Hussein Amir Abdullahan, he warned the U.S. that it would not be spared if it continues to manage what he called the genocide in Palestine. Today in New York, and he's right here in New York, in the U.S., at the United Nations, I say, frankly, to the American statesmen who are now managing the genocide in Palestine, that we do not welcome the expansion of the war in the region, although they are orchestrating the expansion of the war in the region. But he goes on, I warn, if the genocide in Gaza continues, they will not be spared from this fire. It is our home, and West Asia is our region, end quote. Well, he continued by saying his country does not compromise with any party, or side or does not have reservations when it comes to the country's security. Well, he directed comments to President Biden saying that Hamas is ready to release civilian prisoners, then added that the world should support the release of 6,000 Palestinians who are also held as prisoners, uh, though, in Israel. In addition, why the United States itself is actually and in practice and directly involved in committing crimes against Palestinians, it is not in a position to invite others to exercise self-restraint and refrain from spreading the war, the foreign minister went on to say. Therefore, we strongly warn against the uncontrollable consequences of the unlimited financial arms and operational support by the White House to the Tel Aviv regime, which have led to the expansion and added to the severity of the bombardments of the civilians uh, there. So here's an example of the pot calling the kettle black, the Iranian foreign minister warning the United States not to um, engage in this conflict. 
All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, Speaker Mike Johnson, his address to the House. I hope you'll find it as inspiring as uh, as I did. You may not agree with everything he says, but the way he says it gives me a little bit of hope. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the next couple of segments, we'll hear from Speaker of the House Mike Johnson as he addressed the full House after being... Will assigned his new position. Well, a massive manhunt is underway in Maine after a mass shooting that spanned two locations Wednesday night, left at least 22 people dead and 30 wounded. Wednesday's death toll is staggering for a state that reached uh, that recorded 29 homicides for the whole year of 2022. And while the suspect hasn't been named, the Lewiston Police Department identified 40-year-old Robert Card of Bowdoin, Maine, as the person of interest Wednesday night. According to an internal Maine Information and Analysis Center bulletin, he is a firearms instructor, has military experience. Authorities are aware that he may have a police scanner and could be actively listening to some of their movements. They added dozens of agents to the scene over the past few hours, and now the FBI and other organizations um, are, are joining in as well to assist the local law enforcement. SWAT teams are also on the ground and mobilized. Israeli forces conducted brief ground incursions into Gaza Strip as the war with Hamas enters its 20th day. The Hamas-run health ministry claims at least 6,546 Palestinians have been killed, 17,000 wounded. More than 1,400 Israelis have been killed since October 7th, the surprise attack by Hamas, in which 224 people, including foreigners, were taken captive into Gaza. Four people have been released so far. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich, he turned 32 years old today, but marked his birthday from inside Moscow's uh, prison where he's been wrongfully detained by Russia on bogus espionage charges for seven months. Today is his 32nd birthday. It's just a moment for us to reflect really every day that uh, with that, the fact that he has been there uh, is a day too long. And every day that the world is deprived of his journalism about Russia, the country that we uh, care a huge amount about and which will play a huge role in shaping America's destiny. That's a quote from Wall Street uh, Journal Washington Bureau Chief Paul Beckett. Every day that he's not out there reporting is a bad day for journalism as well. So we're going to take a moment today to think especially of him, of the circumstances of uh, the hours and hours and hours of isolation that he is in in this prison and um, detained at least until November 30th and most likely beyond. We expect that uh, to go longer and we haven't even been told when uh, there'll be a trial. Well, Beckett recently pivoted from overseeing the Washington Bureau to focusing solely on securing the release of Gerskovich, his colleague. He's been in uh, detention for seven months, and the longer he goes, this goes on, the harder it is for us to maintain awareness, to really maintain attitude on his case. So it seemed like a worthwhile move to be dedicated to making sure that he remains in the public mind and also in the mind of the U.S. government, because ultimately it will be a negotiation between the American government and the Russian government that brings him home, Beckett went on to say. Well, California homeschooling parents say the state violated the U.S. Constitution by putting burdensome requirements on their family to hide their faith in a public charter school program. John and Brianna Woolard, uh, they joined three other homeschooling parents who filed a lawsuit against the state of California schools after their children's public charter schools 
wouldn't approve a faith-based educational resource they chose through their independent study option. It's very much like a traditional homeschooling program, except with the state funding. But the problem is that many of these charter schools are saying that the parents can select any curriculum they want for their uh, families so long as they're not religious. Well, that's what First Liberty Council's Justin Butterfield says. First Liberty, which is representing the Willard family in the lawsuit, said Blue Ridge Academy, a tuition-free charter school in Southern California, is guilty of religious discrimination. The suit filed on the 11th of this month claims the school restricted the Willards from purchasing religious curriculum for their three school-age children, even if it met state education requirements and refused to accept student work samples that derived from faith-based Excuse me, faith-based materials. <clears throat> Blue Ridge Academy said that work samples must be, <clears throat> pardon me, must be non-sectarian, non-religious to be accepted in their parent-student handbook. That's according to the suit. Well, this requirement derives from the Blaine Amendment in the California State Constitution. However, he said the Supreme Court had already deemed state laws which exclude religious teaching in publicly funded education to be unconstitutional, most recently in Carson versus Mackin. In that case, the Supreme Court ruled the state of Maine could not exclude private schools with religious teaching from receiving funds from their tuition assistance program. The Supreme Court said, no, you can't offer a benefit and open it up to everybody except for those who want to use it for religious education. That's religious discrimination and the Constitution prohibits that, Butterfield said. Yet California is doing precisely that. They'll now have to face that um, in court and the courts will decide. Again, well, Americans are continuing to flee California in droves for states that offer lower taxes, more affordable housing, better safety and a greater sense of freedom. Terry Gilliam moved to California in 1986. He soon fell in love with the Bay Area, often taking scenic trips across the 17 mile strip near Pebble Beach. He was also um, unhappy with the state's um, politics. And over time, he saw California move further and further left. California answers to any problems is to raise taxes. And so I saw less paycheck. I saw the middle class disappearing, he said. So in 2018, he started the Facebook group leaving California after realizing he wasn't the only person concerned about the state's political and social climate. So today, Leaving California and its sister page, Life After California, boasts almost 300,000 combined members. The group saw their most significant growth in January of last year when discussing a proposal to double taxes and provide socialized medicine to residents. Well, every day that month, the group added between 500 to 1,000 new members every day. And while the bill currently sits on ice, the state is now looking into it again. MyElisting.com, an online real estate portal, conducted a study of IRS migration data and found that California lost more than $340 million in 2021 IRS tax revenue due to residents moving for reasons he's already explained. Well, Hamas terrorists spent time training in Iran prior to the October 7th attack on Israel. Well, it really isn't news, but it's now been confirmed And the Biden administration has claimed repeatedly we haven't seen any specific evidence that tells us they were wittingly involved. Well, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that in the weeks leading up to Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel, hundreds of Palestinian Islamist militant group fighters 
received specialized combat training in Iran, according to people familiar with the intelligence related to the assault. Roughly 500 militants from Hamas and an allied group, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, participated in in exercises in September which were led by officers of the Quds Force, the foreign operations arm of the Islamic, uh, the Iran um, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the people said. Senior Palestinian officials and Iranian Brigadier General uh, Ismail Khani, the head of the Quds Force, also attended, they said. Well, Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khomeini on Wednesday accused the United States of directing strikes that Israel has been carrying out on Hamas, calling the U.S. a definite accomplice on criminals during a speech in Tehran. So the United States is being drawn into this uh, conflict in ways that I suppose uh, leaders and military personnel are uh, aware, but uh, perhaps the rest of us didn't anticipate. Well, Albert Moeller says that Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea make the new axis of evil. The 20th century knew more than its uh, share of evil powers, but something new, ominous, and world-shaping came into view In 1936, when fascist Italy and Nazi Germany declared a Rome-Berlin axis united in opposition to the rest of Europe, the combination of Hitler's Germany and Mussolini's Italy into a fascist alliance represented a clear and present danger to civilized Europe and, by extension, to the United States as well. Their Pact of Steel in 1939 formalized the threat even as global war loomed. Very soon, Imperial Japan would join the Axis powers as an ally and as a direct threat to the United States. Well, the new Axis of Evil includes Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. All four nations pose a direct threat to the West. Each is working to subvert the world order. All four are autocracies and dictatorships who see the United States and our allies as decadent, weak, rich, and temporary. These four powers are increasingly aligned against American interests and, in the case of both Iran and North Korea, the ruling powers want to see the United States destroyed. Iran is determined to see Israel erased from the map. We're going to take a break. When we come back, you'll have an opportunity to hear what Speaker Mike Johnson had to say before the full House. I hope you're encouraged and a bit inspired by it. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Louisiana's Representative Mike Johnson is our nation's newest House Speaker. By a unanimous GOP vote yesterday afternoon, with 220 Republicans voting for him, 209 Democrats voting for Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries. Well, the Christian conservative congressman, whom New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik said epitomizes servant leadership, became the 56th Speaker of the House. Well, Speaker Johnson is 51. He is unapologetic about his faith and his acceptance speech, which I found very impressive. He offered hope, referenced scripture, the beauty of America and the necessity of a strong America for the good of the entire world. I found his humility, his olive branch to his political opponents, his respect uh, rather refreshing and wanted to share that speech with you today. Now, to the political junkies who watched yesterday's four vote um, unfold, it must have been pretty sweet to see uh, Johnson jump ahead of Jeffries without bleeding a single GOP protest vote, not to former Speaker McCarthy, not to Johnson's fellow Louisiana and Steve Scalise, not to former New York congressman and gubernatorial candidate Lee Zeldin. This was an early indication that the conference was utterly united behind Johnson and ready to get the House back in order, eager to get the 118th Congress back to work. He referenced the fact that he would have to hit the ground running. And, well, here's uh, the new speaker speaking for himself. This is an address he gave to uh, 
the House of Representatives assembled there following the vote after he was sworn in. Here is Speaker Johnson. Thank you all. Uh, first, uh, a few words of gratitude. I want to thank uh, Leader Jeffries. Uh, I do look forward to working with you on behalf of the American people. I know we see things from very different points of view. But I know that in your heart, you love and care about this country and you want to do what's right. And so we're going to find common ground there. All right. I want to uh, express my great thanks for our Speaker Emeritus, Kevin McCarthy. Kevin has dedicated over two decades of his life to selfless public service, 16 of those years in this House. And you would be hard-pressed to find anybody who loves this institution more or has contributed more to it. He is the reason we're in this majority today. His impact can never be overstated, and I, I want to thank him for his leadership, his friendship, and the, the selfless sacrifice that you and Judy have made for so many years. You, you helped build it, Kevin, and we owe you a great debt of gratitude. I want to thank the dedicated and overworked staff of this beleaguered house. They accept praise so stoically. But... But Miss Miss Susan Cole, our house reading clerk, and yes, yes. Listen, all the clerks and all the staff, you know, they're terribly overworked. This has been a grueling process, but they have served an integral role in keeping our republic, and we thank them for that service. I know we all do. I want to thank my dedicated wife of almost 25 years, Kelly. She's not here. We couldn't get a flight in time. This happened sort of suddenly. (laughs) But but we're going to celebrate soon. She spent the last uh, couple of weeks on her knees in prayer to the Lord, and um, she's a little worn out. We all are. I want to thank our children, Michael and Hannah and Abby and Jack and Will. All of our children sacrifice. All of them do, and we know that. And um, there's not a lot of perks to being a, a member of Congress's kid, right? And so I want to thank all of your families as well for what they endure and what they've had to endure for the last few weeks. We've been here a while. Uh, yeah. I, I want to thank my faithful mother, Jeannie Johnson, who bore me at the age of 17, and uh, my brothers Chris and Josh and my sister Laura and all their families and all of our extended family. In Louisiana, family's a big deal, and we've got a bunch of them. Uh, I especially want to thank all the extraordinary people of the great state of Louisiana. We have never had a Speaker of the House hail from our state, and so they've been lifting us up. Uh, I I thank the the people of Louisiana for the opportunity to serve you in Congress, and I'm humbled by your continuous support. We will make you proud. To my colleagues, I I want to thank you all for the trust that you have instilled in me to lead us in this historic and unprecedented moment that we're in. The challenge before us is great, but the time for action is now, and I will not let you down. I want to say to the American people, on behalf of all of us here, we hear you. We know the challenges you're facing. We 
we know that, uh, that there's a lot going on in our country, domestically and abroad, and we are ready to get to work again to solve those problems, and we will. Our mission here is to serve you well, to restore the people's faith in this house, in this great and essential institution. My, my dad, it was mentioned my dad was a firefighter. He was an assistant chief in the fire department in my hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana, a little town in northwest Louisiana. On September 17, 1984, when I was 12 years old, he was critically uh, burned and permanently disabled in the line of duty. All I ever wanted to be when I grew up was the chief of the fire department in Shreveport. Um, but after the explosion on that fateful day, he nearly died, and it was a long road back, and it changed all of our life trajectories. I'm the oldest of four kids, and, and my dad, um, he lived with pain all the rest of his life for decades more, and I lost my dad to cancer three days before I got elected to Congress, three days. And he wanted to be there um, at my election night so badly. Um, I'm the first college graduate in my family. This was a big deal to him. And um, so several weeks after that, it was early 2017, 2017, uh, it was my freshman term, and, and um, it, it fell to me to be in the rostrum one night to serve here as Speaker Pro Tem. I thought that was a big deal until I figured out that's what you do for freshmen late at night. <laughs> And I, I want to, I think if my memory serves, Miss Jackson Lee was, um, was winding down one of her long, eloquent speeches. <laughs> and not, not that I was not in, enraptured by her speech, but I, I looked, up, looked up at the top in, in uh, the chamber there, and I saw the face of Moses staring down. And um, I just felt in that moment the weight of this place, right? The, the history that is revered here and the future that we are called to forge, and I really was just kind of almost overwhelmed with emotion. It occurred to me in that moment, it had been several weeks, and I had not had an opportunity yet to grieve my dad's passing, and, and um, I just had this sense that, that somehow he knew. And, and I had tears come to my eyes, and I was standing here, and I'm wiping them away, and then it suddenly occurs to me, the late-night C-SPAN viewers are going to think something's very wrong with the new young congressman from Louisiana. It, it wasn't Sheila's speech. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I just knew in that moment that my, my, my dad, my father, would be, would be proud of me, and I felt that he was. And, and I think all of our parents are proud of what we're called to do here. I think all the American people at one time had great pride in this institution. But right now, um, that's in jeopardy. And we have a challenge before us right now to rebuild and restore that trust. This is a, a beautiful country. It's the beauty of America that allows a, a firefighter's kid like me to come here and serve in this sacred chamber where great men and women have served before all of us and strive together to build and then preserve what Lincoln did refer to as the last best hope of man on earth. We stand at a very dangerous time. I'm stating the obvious. We all know that. The world is in turmoil. But a strong America is good for the entire world. We, we are the beacon of freedom, and we must preserve this grand experiment in self-governance. It still is. We're only 247 years into this grand experiment. We don't know how long it will last, but we do know that the founders, to take, the founders told us to take good care of it. I want to tell all my colleagues here what I told the Republicans in that room last night. I don't believe there are any coincidences in a matter like this. I, I believe that Scripture, the Bible, is <clears throat> very clear. That, that God is the one that raises up those in authority. He raised up each of you, all of us. 
And, and I believe that God has ordained and allowed each one of us to be brought here for this specific moment in this time. This is my belief. I believe that each one of us has a huge responsibility today to use the gifts that God has given us to serve the extraordinary people of this great country, and they deserve it, and to ensure that our republic remains standing as the great beacon of light and hope and freedom in a world that desperately needs it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. If you've just joined us, we are sharing uh, with you the uh, speech that was given by uh, the new House Speaker, Congressman from Louisiana, Mike Johnson, the nation's newest um, leader in that role. He represents the uh, 56th Speaker of the House. Prior to becoming Speaker, this four-term Republican was the GOP conference's vice chair. He served on multiple key congressional committees, and on Tuesday night, he outpolled another rising star in the party, Florida's Byron Donalds. In a head-to-head secret ballot after Tennessee's Mark Green and Texas' Roger Williams withdrew their names from consideration. Johnson is a Freedom Caucus member with a strong 91 American conservative union rating. He's also a past president of the highly influential Republican Study Committee, the largest committee in the GOP conference. Above all, though, he's both smart, he's likable, two attributes that sometimes seem to be short supply in Washington, especially in the Beltway. Uh, He isn't a polarizer. He doesn't draw the fire of some uh, America first Republicans. And uh, while the Democrats are already calling him MAGA Mike, we suspect he'll smile and nod and roll up the uh, roll with that moniker, roll up his sleeves and get busy. Ultimately, he'll bring credit to that role. We're now going to continue his address to the House. It was in 1962 in 1962 that, that our national motto in God we trust was adorned above this rostrum. And if you look at the little uh, guide that they give uh, tourists and constituents who come and and, and visit the house, if you turn in there to about page 14 in the middle of that guide, it tells you the history of this. And it says very simply, these words were placed here above us. This motto was placed here as a rebuke of the Cold War era philosophy of the Soviet Union. That philosophy was Marxism and communism, which begins with the premise that there is no God. This is a critical distinction that is also articulated in our nation's birth certificate. We know the language well, the famous second paragraph that we used to have children memorize in school, and and they don't do that so often anymore, but they should. G.K. Chesterton was the famous British philosopher and statesman, and he said one time, America is the only nation in the world that is founded upon a creed. And he said it's listed with almost theological lucidity in the Declaration of Independence. What is our creed? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, not born equal, created equal. And they are endowed by the the same inalienable rights, with the same inalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. That That is the creed that has animated our nation since its founding, that has made us the great nation that we are. And we're in a time of extraordinary crisis right now. And the world needs us to be strong. They need us to remember our creed and our admonition. Turmoil and violence have rocked the Middle East and Eastern Europe. We all know it. And tensions continue to build in the Indo-Pacific. The country demands strong leadership of this body, and we must not waver. Our, our, Our nation's greatest ally in the Middle East is under attack. The first bill that I'm going to bring to this floor in just a little while will be in support of our dear friend Israel, and we're overdue in getting that done. 
We're going to show not only Israel, but the entire world that the barbarism of Hamas that we have all seen play out on our television screens is wretched and wrong, and we are going to stand for the good in that conflict. We, We have a catastrophe at our southern border. The Senate and the White House can no longer ignore the problem. From Texas to New York, wave after wave of illegal migrants are stressing our communities to their breaking points. We we know that our streets are being flooded with fentanyl, and all of our communities, children, and even adults are dying from it. The status quo is unacceptable. Inaction is unacceptable, and we must come together and address the broken border. We have to do it. The skyrocketing cost of living is unsustainable, and Americans should not have to worry about how they're going to feed their family every week because they can't afford their groceries anymore. Everybody in this room should think about this. Here's the stats. Prices have increased over 17% in the last two years. Credit card interest rates are at the highest level in nearly three decades, and mortgage rates are now at a peak we haven't seen since 2001. We have to bring relief to the American people by reining in federal spending and bringing down inflation. The the greatest threat to our national security is our nation's debt. And while we've been sitting in this room, that's right, the the debt has crossed almost $33.6 trillion. And the time that it's going to take me to, to deliver this speech will go up another $20 million in debt. It's unsustainable. We have to get the country back on track. Now, we know this is not going to be an easy task, and tough decisions will have to be made. But the consequences, if we don't act now, are unbearable. We have a duty to the American people to explain this to them so they understand it well. And we are going to establish a bipartisan debt commission to begin working on this crisis immediately. Immediately. We all know that we also live in a time of bitter partisanship. It was noted. And it's been on display here today, right? When our people are losing their faith in government, when, when, when they're losing sight of the principles that made us the greatest nation in the history of the world, I think we've got to be mindful of that. We're going to fight. We're going to fight uh, vigorously over our core principles because they're at odds a lot of times now in this modern era. We have to sacrifice sometimes our preferences because that's what's necessary in a legislative body. But we will defend our core principles to the end. In his farewell address, thank you. In his farewell address, President uh, Reagan uh, explained the secret of his rapport with people. And, And I like to paraphrase his explanation all the time. He said, you know, they call me the great communicator, but I really wasn't that. He said, I was just communicating great things. And they're the same great things that they've guided our nation since its founding. What are those great things? I call them the seven core principles of American conservatism, but let me concede to you all, I think it's really quintessentially the core principles of our nation. I boil them down to individual freedom, limited government, the rule of law, peace through strength, fiscal responsibility, free markets, and human dignity. Those, those are the foundations that made us the extraordinary nation that we are. And you and I today are the stewards of those principles, the things that have made us the freest, most powerful, most successful nation in the history of the world, the things that have made us truly exceptional. In this time of great crisis, 
It is our duty to work together, as previous generations of great leaders have, to face these great challenges and solve these great problems. I will conclude with this. The job of the Speaker of the House is to serve the whole body, and I will. But I've made a commitment to my colleagues here that this Speaker's office is going to be known for decentralizing the power here. My office is going to be known for members being more involved and having more influence in our processes and all the major decisions that are made here for predictable processes and regular order. We owe that to the people. That's right. And I want to make this commitment to you, to my colleagues here and on the other side of the aisle as well. My office is going to be known for trust and transparency and accountability, for good stewardship of the people's treasure, for the honesty and integrity that is incumbent upon us, all of us, here in the people's house. Our system of government is not a perfect system. It's got a lot of challenges, but it is still the best one in the world, and we have an opportunity to preserve it. Last thing I'm going to say is a message to the rest of the world. They have been watching this drama play out for a few weeks. We've learned a lot of lessons, but you know what? Through adversity, it makes you stronger. And, yeah. And, and we want our allies around the world to know that this body of lawmakers is reporting again to our duty stations. Let the enemies of freedom around the world hear us loud and clear. The People's House is back in business. We will do our duty here. We will serve you well. We will govern well. And we'll make you proud in this institution again. We're going we're gonna to fight every day to make sure that is true. I look forward to the days ahead. I genuinely believe in my heart that the best days of America are still ahead of us. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. Thank you. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, if you haven't yet heard, high schoolers here in the state of Oregon won't need to demonstrate basic competency in reading, writing, or math in order to graduate for at least five more years because... According to education officials in the state of Oregon, such requirements are unnecessary and disproportionately harm students of color. I suppose illiteracy disproportionate among minorities is okay. Well, at some point, Christine Drazen, who was a a candidate for governor here in the state of Oregon, she makes an excellent point. Our diploma is going to end up looking a lot more like a participation prize than an actual certificate that shows someone actually is prepared to pursue their best future that they can actually do something that would result in gainful employment. Well, here to talk with us about this and much more with regard to education is Sherry Few. She is the founder and president of United States Parents Involved in Education, or USPE, uh, whose mission is to end the U.S. Department of Education and all federal education mandates. We'll give her an opportunity to explain, so stay with us here. The organization has established 20 state chapters. They're growing rapidly around the national outcry for, from parents who want to regain control of their children's education. She is a nationally recognized leader on education policy and is often quoted in conservative media and has spent much of the last year exposing critical race theory and serving as executive producer for the new document film titled Truth and Lies in American Education. She joins us today to talk about what's happening in Oregon, but my guess is not exclusive to Oregon and maybe coming to a school district near you. Sherry Few, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you having me on. 
Well, I cannot tell you as an Oregonian, as an African-American, how frustrating this policy is. I've been an Oregonian for many years, so it's not altogether surprising. But it certainly is infuriating to consider that now they've made the decision to extend this policy into the future. For listeners who aren't really familiar with what's going on here, explain what's at stake. Well, it's really sad that they keep lowering the bars for achievement for children. Um, You know, they want to blame COVID. It it all began with COVID, uh, according to these experts, quote unquote experts. Uh, But the academic decline has been uh, happening for far, far before the COVID shutdowns. Of course, the COVID shutdowns exacerbated things. But prior to that, there were uh, academic decline, according to the NAEP scores. And it's, I believe the STEM was uh, the Common Core Standards, which were adopted across the country in 2010. We knew they were faulty standards. We knew we would see this decline. But now they want to blame it on COVID. And now, I, yeah, it's really sad to think that they're going to continue lowering the bar for the students in Oregon. Yeah, it, it's very um, frustrating to me, as I've mentioned. And it seems to me that what they're going to do, whether or not it's the intent, and I I'm somewhat cynical and believe perhaps this is part of the explanation is to create a permanent underclass that will be reliant on government literally for everything. And that seems like a convenient arrangement for those who believe that government is the answer to everything. Oh, absolutely. You you can be guaranteed that it's an intentional agenda. I've been studying education policy for more than 20 years and and we've seen it. Um, it began long ago. Um, we We were focused on outcomes instead of individual student achievement. So, you know, they want all children to have the same outcome. And that's not possible because in order to have the same outcome, you have to have the same input. And of course, every child doesn't put the same sort of effort into their schoolwork. So in in order to uh, lower the achievement gap, which has been, you know, the cry for so long, uh, you know, it started under No Child Left Behind when they were trying to uh, close the achievement gap between black students and white students with this outcome-based education. And so it's not just the liberals who are um, at fault when it comes to education policy. The Republicans have always um, been right there with them, unfortunately. So what I believe um, is the problem, truly the problem, I think, in the black community is that they lack two-parent families and, and a good, strong family environment. And so, you know, the social scientists all agree that when a child has been born into a two-parent family, that they are going to fare better in every measure of well-being in society. So we've known this for some time. The social scientists all agree. And yet we're focused on things to lower achievement rather than trying to encourage good uh, family structures and, and providing the support for a child when they're young so that they can achieve well in academics and every other measure of well-being. Well, let me ask, what is your organization doing to uh, support strong education for children across the United States? Uh, Because I think a lot of people are very frustrated by what we're seeing and what we're hearing, but aren't really sure how to go about, aside from voicing our our outrage, uh, how we can influence the course that education is likely to take. What are you all doing to help? Well, I'm so glad you asked, because our mission as an organization, and we've been a national organization for about seven years, Our mission is to close the U.S. Department of Education and end all federal education mandates because we understand that that's where the majority of the nefarious pedagogy originates, and it's incentivized with federal dollars. 
So we we created a blueprint back in 2018 for how that can happen. You know, a lot of politicians, candidates, you know, talk about closing the Department of Ed, but who has actually developed a concrete plan to do it? Well, our organization has, and more most recently, we developed a blueprint for states to help them wean themselves off the federal dole because it will be easier to achieve uh, than trying to change the whole national landscape. And we actually have a few states that are looking at doing that. So we created this blueprint that will show states how they can um, come out from under the federal government and do it in a way that they can streamline their funding and even be more effective with education. So our blueprints can be found at our website, which is USPIE, that's USPI.org. And I hope that your listeners will go there and check that out. They can also join the movement there, and then they'll be connected with us, and we'll keep them informed about uh, critical education policy issues that will be facing their states, and also look for a chapter in their state. Um, If there's not a chapter in their state, they can contact us, and we'd love to talk with them about starting a chapter in their state. Now, we are uh, talking to an audience in the state of Oregon and in the state of, of Washington. Do you have chapters in either state? We have one in Washington, but not in Oregon. So, you know, again, if you have listeners that are parents or and they don't even have to be parents because every American freedom loving American needs to know if we don't stop the indoctrination of children in our country, we're going to lose our very freedom because that is the end goal. You know, with the critical Marxist theories that they're teaching, it's an intentional agenda to divide people, pit them against one another, as you suggested, dumb them down so they're dependent on the government. And and we see it, Georgine, we see it in the streets. We see these high school and college students that are uh, protesting in favor of Hamas. So we see that they have been effective in creating social justice warriors, which is a part of their standards, a part of the Common Core standards. So um, they can also view our film, which is at our website, or it's at the film. It has its own website, truthandliesfilm.us, and it's a wonderful uh, documentary that exposes all of the problems that are happening in government schools uh, funded by your tax dollars and how important it is that we put a stop to it. Well, I'll tell you what, we need to take a break. Can, uh, can you stay with me for just a few more moments? Because I would like to talk about the film, Truth and Lies in American Education. Can you stay with us? Yes, I can. Thank you. We'll take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to continue our conversation with Sherry Few, president and founder of United States Parents Involved in Education. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Sherry Few. She is president and founder of United States Parents Involved in Education. My understanding is there's a chapter in Washington, but not here in the state of Oregon. If you're interested in information about how you might learn more about that, you can check that out. Also, we want to talk about their uh, their film, Truth and Lies in American Education, to inform viewers about the dangers in modern education, similar to what's going on here in the state of Oregon, uh, deciding to, uh, well, downgrade what uh, constitutes a, an education in this state. Well, the, the film, is it a documentary? How would you characterize it? And tell us a bit about it. A delightful one, because it's not just a, a dry, boring bunch of um, experts. We have a storyline in the film, and it's it features the true story of my daughter-in-law, April Few. And so she's um, 
doing research and trying to decide what type of education she will provide for her children. And in so doing, she reads several books. She interviews the authors of these books, and they are the experts that we bring to the film. So we discuss, um, you know, the sexualization of children, which is really rampant, uh, you know, with the transgender influences and grooming very young children uh, to think that they're a sex opposite or contrary to their biological sex. Uh, we go into the the war on history. There's just been a, a whole um, undertaking to undermine the true history of this country. You're probably familiar with the 1619 Project. We touch on yes. that, and, and we talk about the whole war on history. Um, we also talk about the critical Marxist theories. So it's not just critical race theory. There's critical queer theory, critical gender theory, critical feminist theory, and they're all encompassed in something they call culturally relevant pedagogy, which you will find in every school in the country. And these are the critical Marxist theories that they're teaching young children, again, that sets them up against one another. It teaches them to hate themselves and others and hate our country. And it is so sad to think that that is what we're putting in the minds of young children, very young ages. And all of this is revealed in the film. Well, I want to make sure our listeners know where can they uh, view the film and how can they learn more about the organization that you uh, found and lead uh, United States parents involved in education. Found at truthandliesfilm.us and that's spelled out truth, A-N-D, lies, film.us. They can go there and rent the film or they can buy the DVD. They can stream it. And I'm giving permission to anyone who buys the DVD to show it in large audiences. There isn't a licensing fee required because we just want to get this information out to as many people as possible. So then other resources they can find at our organization's website, which is USPIE, that's USPI.org, and they can sign up to join the movement there. There's uh, resources for getting people prepared to run for school board because You know, we believe that at the core, we have to restore parental and local control of education. And that's the only way we're going to be able to right the ship. So we have great resources on the website that can enable people and empower them to work on these efforts. And again, if there's uh, there's not a chapter in Oregon. So if anyone listening is uh, feels compelled to be involved with our movement, we would love to talk with them and get them started and connect them with other people in Oregon. Uh, because we do have quite a wide database across the country, and I'm sure we have people that have reached out to us from Oregon. We can connect with those people and get them started. I mentioned at the top of our conversation that my belief is that part of the motivation behind this is to to, uh, develop a permanent underclass that will be dependent on a government, not just financially, but in in every way. They're they're, uh, incapable of critical thought, uh, incapable of supporting themselves and their families. What what do you believe is at stake if we allow education in Oregon and elsewhere across the country in the ways that you just described to go unchecked? If parents don't stay, step forward, if taxpayers uh, and those who are concerned about the course of our nation and our future, if, if they don't step forward and call this out, what what's at stake? Well, our country's freedom is at stake. And and it's it's ex- extremely important, not just for parents, but everyone who loves their freedom for the taxpayers, because they're paying for this indoctrination, it's extremely important that they understand how serious this is. In the beginning of our film, we interview Alex Newman, and Alex says that there's a lot of important issues in our culture. You know, there's 
the Second Amendment, the right to life. These are all important issues. But the one issue that runs through all of them is education. Mm -hmm. And if we don't get this right, we're going to lose on every other front because of the indoctrination of children. They are indoctrinating them with leftist ideology and, again, to hate our country. You you see it uh, in the streets. You see it, you know, with the Black Lives Matter, the Antifa movement. These are all very young people that have been trained and, and dumbed down to a point where they don't know the truth and they accept what's being taught to them and they've been taught that justice uh, should come at any cost. At any cost. I remember one quote in which a young woman said that we will prevail and we will be ungovernable. And if that doesn't sober you up about what's what's at stake and what's ahead, I don't know what will. Well, Sherry Few, I am so uh, thankful that you've joined us here today for the film that you have produced and would encourage our listeners to seek more information at your website as well. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Georgine. Appreciate Appreciate it. it. Bye bye. Again, Sherry Few, president and founder of United States Parents Involved in education, the name of the film, Truth and Lies in American Education. Now, if you're listening to us um, in Seattle, I want to say have a great weekend. Um, in Portland, we're going to continue for the next few segments. We've got Israel's difficult choices, the president's phony red line, and when are we going to respond to what's happening uh, at the behest of Iran? That's coming up here in Portland. Uh, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back, or if you're in Seattle, not. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back to the Portland only segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Texas is suing the Biden administration for cutting razor wire border fencing. Nobody's happy. Everybody's mad at somebody for something. And this is just the latest example. Anyway, Texas sued the administration on Tuesday over federal agents cutting razor wire. They had deployed along the border by Texas authorities to deter illegal immigration. Well, the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's office filed the suit in a federal court in Del Rio, Texas, against the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas and the department itself and others. Paxton accused the federal agents of illegally destroying state property and obstructing the state border security efforts. Texas has the sovereign right to construct border barriers to prevent the entry of illegal aliens, Paxton said in his statement. Well, the suit comes less than a month after Mayorkas waived over two dozen federal laws in early October, pretty much paving the way for the White House to resume construction of the border wall in South Texas. There is presently an acute and immediate need to construct physical barriers and roads in the vicinity of the border of the United States in order to prevent unlawful entries into the United States in the project areas. The secretary wrote in the notice signaling a notable reversal about face of the administration's earlier refusal to erect new barriers. So the fight between the White House and the state of Texas continues. Meanwhile, the massive manhunt is ongoing in the area of Lewiston, Maine, for 40-year-old Robert Card, a firearms instructor and army reservist and a person of interest who authorities believe, um, well, who authorities know opened fire first at a bowling alley and then at a bar just before 7 p.m. last night, killing 22 people, wounding dozens more. It's not clear whether these uh, two locations were posted as gun-free zones, uh, but what was uh, desperately needed last night was a good guy, well, who could take this guy out. Well, the tragedy here is compounded by a missed opportunity and utter failure to institutionalize a known risk. Card recently reported mental health issues, including 
uh, hearing voices in his head. And apparently he threatened to shoot up his army unit and had been committed to a mental health facility for two weeks during the summer. But he was then released. Maine has a yellow flag law, which allows law enforcement, but not family members, to remove guns from those deemed to be a threat. Nikki Haley noted on Fox News last night in an interview, 80 percent of mass shootings are mental health related and 70 percent involve suicidal tendencies. Mental health, not a gun culture, is thus the driving force behind the overwhelming majority of such massacres. One of the key questions surrounding the massive and murderous attack on uh, Israel by Hamas terrorists was the organization's ability to plan and carry out such a plan without having been detected. Well, Israel's intelligence service have long been the world's gold standard for uncovering such plots well in advance. But this time, this time they failed miserably and catastrophically. As it turns out, Hamas went uh, low tech to subvert Israel's high tech capabilities And as the New York Post reports, a small cell of Hamas terrorists used old school landline phones specially installed in the spider web of tunnels under Gaza to evade Israeli intelligence forces for two years while plotting the group's horrific October 7th attack. The hardwired phone system allowed Hamas to communicate without being detected by Israel or the United States. In addition, Hamas plotters held in-person planning meetings. They avoided uh, digital and cellular communications. They kept their barbaric designs from their rank-and-file terrorists so as to better maintain secrecy. Israel and the U.S. would no doubt adapt their intelligence-gathering methods uh, methods going forward, but at a human cost of more than 1,400 dead and more than 200 still um, held hostage. So this was a very costly lesson to be learned. In other news, uh, Team Biden's anti-Semite and Dems rebuke Omar. That was the headline. Anti-Semitic attacks have risen in the U.S. in the wake of Hamas attack on Israel, increasing some by some 388 percent, according to the Anti-Defamation League. Well, the Justice Department official tasked with prosecuting these hate crimes is Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division, Kristen Clark. But she has a history of supporting anti-Semitic groups like the Council on American-Islamic Relations, an organization that is explicitly anti-Israel. Well, Clark has praised anti-Semites like Representative Rashida Tlaib, Linda Sassauer, and Tamika uh, Mallory. And while Clark was a student at Harvard University, she organized a speaking event for then Wellesley College professor Tom, or rather Tony Martin, a known anti-Semite who made the false claim that Jews were behind the international slave trade. Meanwhile, uh, Representative Ilhan Omar was uh, recently blasted by fellow Democrat Congressman Richie Torres for her claim that he was uh, happy Palestinians were getting killed. Torres noted that Omar voted against Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system. Were it not for Iron Dome interceptions, there would be uh, far more dead Israelis, far more by orders of magnitude, he said. And so the policy position she has taken would have led to more dead Israelis and more dead Palestinians, end quote. God help us. And I mean that sincerely. That's how I'm praying anyway. Well, Biden's northern border malfeasance, some new numbers indicate that it's not just our southern border thrown wide open by the guy who notoriously invited all those people who are seeking asylum to immediately surge to the border. Indeed, that's a quote, by the way, in the fiscal year just concluded, the U.S. apprehended more illegal border crossers at one northern border sector than in the prior 11 years combined. 
years, including roughly half of Barack Obama's term in office and his unconstitutional amnesty. Well, as Just the News reports, Swanton Sector Border Patrol agents apprehended more than 6,700 foreign nationals from 76 countries attempting to enter the U.S. illegally from Canada. That's a 550% increase from fiscal year 22 for the border sector covering 295 miles across the northeastern New York, Vermont, and New Hampshire borders. Our agents there must feel like they're, well, playing whack-a-mole. No, the United Auto Workers, they've come to a tentative agreement after a costly strike of nearly six weeks, a strike that saw an enfeebled a president become the first to ever engage in a shameless picket line photo op. The United Auto Workers Union and Ford Motor Company may have come to terms. As NBC News reports, the agreement will uh, need to be ratified by UAW members, thousands of whom have walked off the job at Ford factories and throughout the U.S., including that of uh, Kentucky Truck Plant, the, com- the uh, company's largest factory worldwide. So far, though, both sides have been Well, pretty tight-lipped, neither spokespeople for Ford or the UAW were willing to comment on their earlier negotiations. Well, good and bad news on abortion. Georgia's Supreme Court ruled Tuesday that the Peach State law banning abortions after six weeks is constitutional. The court's 6-1 majority cited the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization ruling last summer, noting that the justices overturned Roe by finding it to, to have been egregiously wrong from the start. Well, Georgia's law has reduced abortion in the state by 40%. However, across the entire country, the ending of Roe has resulted in an uptick in abortions, with the last 12 months averaging 183 more abortions per month than prior to the court ruling. You can thank Democrats' rabid promotion of the cult of abortion, the cult of death, for that. Well, the ACLU and HIV. Tennessee recently passed a law making it a felony for a person who knowingly has an HIV infection to engage in prostitution. Anyone found in violation will be hit with a Class C felony and will be registered as a lifetime violent sex offender. It seems to make sense. Seems like an entirely reasonable law, but leave it to the American Civil Liberties Union to come up with a, well, come out against the legislation, claiming that it's racist. In announcing the lawsuit against Tennessee over the law, the ACLU asserted this law is unconstitutional and disproportionately affects blacks and transgender women. Who exactly are the racists here? Does the ACLU not recognize the fact that it has just negatively stereotyped an entire racial group, which, by the way, is um, quite acceptable in this country these days? If you want something to be passed and it's not necessarily good for everybody or anybody, just tack along a little race uh, baiting exposing the hypocrisy even more the aclu supported the mandating of vaccines which it has said were a justifiable intrusion on autonomy and bodily integrity because these rights do not include the right to inflict harm on others that's a quote tell that to the hiv infected man dressed up like a woman who wants to spread the love well, Oregon education, speaking of um, racism, Oregon State uh, Board of Education recently suspended for at least five years, at least five years, the requirement of basic competency in reading, writing and math in order to qualify for high school graduation. Why? Well, according to Oregon officials, holding to those basic requirements negatively impacts students of color because students of color don't need to read, write or do math. They don't want to be gainfully employed and seek higher education, apparently. 
In other words, the Beaver State Board of Education has effectively declared that black students are not smart enough to learn how to read, write, or do math. It's the soft bigotry of low expectations coined by former President Bush. Once again, who are the racists here? As former Oregon Republican gubernatorial candidate Christine Drazen observed, at some point, our diploma is going to end up looking a lot more like participation prizes than an actual certificate that shows that someone actually is prepared to pursue their best future. Exactly. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Democrats are aiming to disbar John Eastman. Well, in the wake of the 2020 election, one of the individuals who advised Donald Trump regarding legal theories for challenging the results was lawyer and constitutional scholar John Eastman. Well, ever since, Eastman has found himself the target of Democrats who are effectively trying to punish him for offering his service to the former president. It was Eastman who presented the novel and likely unconstitutional view that Vice President Mike Pence had the unilateral authority to delay Congress's certification of the Electoral College vote. For this, Democrats are seeking to get Eastman disbarred, with the state bar in, of California working to strip him of his legal license. Well, for Democrats, the overall goal is to prevent Republicans from legally objecting to any objecting rather objecting to any future election results. Only Democrats are permitted to challenge elections, which, by the way, in the 2016 elections, they did. Beyond rehabilitation, the footage is, well, it's sickening and perhaps you've already seen it. Two utterly twisted Las Vegas teenagers. They steal a car, then go joyriding, filming themselves as they speed down the road and plow into a bicyclist, killing him just for kicks. Yeah, hit his expletive, the one says to the other, so he did. The victim was 64-year-old Andreas Probst, a 35-year law enforcement veteran and former chief of police, who Las Vegas police say was out for a morning bike ride on the 14th of August. But as the New York Post reports, the most disturbing part of this story might have been materialized more recently, as the two accused teens, 18-year-old Jesus Ayala and 16-year-old uh, Jasmir Keys laughed at each other, smiled, and seemingly flipped off their victims' families during a court hearing earlier this week. Weeks earlier, video footage of um, Ayala's um, arrest shows him flippantly requesting a burger from the arresting cop and betting him that he'll be back on the streets in short order. They really had no remorse, Probst, the 27-year-old daughter of Taylor, said. This is just a game to them. Well, the truth is they may well be back out on the streets. That's the way things go in today's America, particularly in certain cities under certain leadership. Cooper Union barricaded Jewish students inside the library as pro-Palestinian protesters banged on the door. A pro-Palestine protester called for a boycott of Nike while, of course, wearing Nikes. Apparently doesn't quite get the idea of a boycott. Jamal Bowman, who will plead guilty to a misdemeanor for pulling a fire alarm in a Capitol building that was all handled earlier today. Former President Trump has been fined an additional $10,000 after taking the stand in a civil fraud trial yesterday. And the U.S. GDP grew at a 4.9 percent annual pace in the third quarter, better than expected. Well, on this day in history, 1774, the First Continental Congress adjourns in Philadelphia. 1825, the Erie Canal opens in upstate New York, connecting Lake Erie and the Hudson River. 
1881, the gunfight at the OK Corral takes place in Tombstone, Arizona, as Wyatt Earp, his two brothers, and Doc Holliday confront Ike Clanton's gang. Three members of Clanton's gang are killed. Earp's brothers and Holliday are wounded. I remember the movie. 1944, the World War II Battle of uh, Leyte Gulf ends in a major Allied victory over Japanese forces whose naval capabilities are badly crippled. 1949, President Harry S. Truman signs a measure raising the minimum wage from 40 to 75 per, uh, cents per hour. 1965, the Beatles receive MBE medals as members of the most excellent order of the British Empire from Queen Elizabeth II at Buckingham Palace. 1979, South Korean President uh, Park Chung-hee is shot to death by the head of the Korean Central Intelligence Agency, Kim Jae-kyu. 1980, Israeli President Yitzhak Nevon, he becomes the first Israeli head of state to visit, is- to visit I- Egypt. Rather, 1984, Baby Faye, a newborn with a severe heart defect, is given the heart of a baboon in an experimental transplant in Loma Linda, California. Baby Faye would live 21 days with the animal heart. 2000 on this day in history, the New York Yankees become the first team in more than a quarter century to win three straight World Series championships, beating New York Mets 4-2 in Game 5 of their Subway Series. 2001, President George W. Bush signs the USA Patriot Act, giving authorities unprecedented ability to search, seize, detain, or eavesdrop in a pursuit of possible terrorists. 2009, Bill Cosby receives the 12th annual Mark Twain Prize for American Humor during a salute at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. 2018, federal authorities capture a Florida man with a criminal history and accused him of sending at least 13 mail bombs to prominent Democrats. Cesar Sayoc would be sentenced to 20 years in prison by a judge who concluded that the bombs purposely were not designed to explode. 2018, the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Boston Red Sox take to the field for what would become the longest World Series game in history, an 18-inning marathon lasting 7 hours and 20 minutes. The Red Sox win 3-2, to and all that time, 3-2 to on a <laughs> home run by Max Muncy. That's why I have a little trouble with baseball. Really slow. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, Islamic State mastermind Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is killed by a U.S.-led force in Syria. When General Dwight D. Eisenhower was struggling over when to order the D-Day invasion of Europe in 1944, he wrestled with uncooperative weather, but also worried that more, any more delays beyond the one delay he'd already ordered could possibly lower morale and reduce troop readiness. For Israel, more delays in invading Gaza and destroying Hamas' ability to commit new acts of terror against the Jewish state is only one of several considerations facing the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his military leaders. Israel is at a moral disadvantage because it cares about preserving human life while its enemies celebrate death in the pursuit of eliminating the Jewish state. And ultimately, the best case scenario for them would be martyrdom. Here are just some of the difficult choices Israel has to make, none of them good. Invade now and risk the deaths of more than an estimated 200 hostages, along with considerable Israeli troop casualties, not to mention Palestinian uh, civilians. Invade now and risk opening a new front on Israel's northern border with Lebanon, uh, potentially facing a barrage of missiles from that terrorist group's largest stockpile. 
Invade at a future date, possibly losing troop readiness and lowered morale, but also losing support from nations that initially condemned the terrorist attack. Pay a ransom for the release of the hostages in money or in a terrorist prisoner exchange or both, which in the past has done nothing to quench the thirst for more blood by its enemies. Israel faces continued threats from its many enemies, which include much of the world's media that almost always faults Israel for anything bad that occurs in the region. The New York Times reporting on the supposed Israeli attack on a Gaza hospital that allegedly killed hundreds of people was taken directly from the Palestinians and not fact checked. I say Palestinians, but I mean Hamas. When Israel proved the report a lie, the Times felt it necessary to print an editor's note which said its uh, false report left readers with an incorrect impression about what was known and how credible the account was. Who would have thought that a false report might leave an incorrect impression? The Times' bogus report was screaming headlines, also added fuel to the fire, causing worldwide demonstrations against Israel before the truth was revealed that a misfired Islamic Jihad rocket was blamed, and it hit the parking lot and not the structure. Hamas and its terrorist allies appear to have studied at the Joseph Goebbels School of Propaganda. His most famous line has been appropriated not only by Hamas, but also by many in the media. If you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. The lie can be maintained only for such a time, for such time as the state can shield the people from the political, economic, and or military consequence of the lie. It thus becomes vitally important for the state to use it, to use all its powers to repress dissent, for the truth is the mortal enemy of the lie, and thus, by extension, the truth is the greatest enemy of the state. We're out of time. I want to thank uh, James Blend for producing and engineering a portion of today's program, Dave King for engineering the bulk, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.